0: Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Blattes.
1: And I'm Jacob Sheckman.
0: In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new.
1: Hello, and welcome everyone to today's episode of the Polymer Science Podcast. Now I'm excited to get our guest introduced in this episode. Our guest is Benjamin Alameda. He's another graduate student here at the USM Southern Miss, the University of Southern Mississippi Polymer Science Program. But before we get into today's interview, I'm actually excited to announce that we're introducing a new co-host to this show. Another colleague of mine within USM, a friend of mine, Anthony Griffin. Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, how about you just give our guests a quick introduction and let them know. Who's who they're hearing from today? Hey
2: everybody, I'm Anthony Griffin. I'm a first uh, year graduate student in polymer science and engineering uh, at USM as well. And I'm, I'm fairly excited to join this podcast. One to be just like you all are as viewers, introduced to you a lot more research and cutting edge knowledge being gained in the polymer science world, but also to get to know everybody as well. So thank you for having me aboard. My background, I did a, a bachelor's in biochemistry and matches in polymers and cutting science in Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, if you're familiar with that. But yeah, I'm excited to learn along the way and be a part of this. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. Anthony, we're stoked to have you on board. Uh, I'm sure some of our guests are probably curious about that work you mentioned out at Cal Poly. Maybe maybe we can get an episode all about you coming up soon as a better introduction. How'd you like that? That'd be great. Awesome. All right. Well, now to the main guest of the show. Anthony, I'm sorry that's enough of you. We're moving on to our other friend, Benjamin Alameda. Ben, thanks for joining us. How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing really well. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the invite. And uh, no, I'm super excited to talk polymer science. So Awesome. We've we've heard you talk polymer science before, so we're excited to get the the listeners to hear you talk about it as well. Ben's work is pretty freaking awesome, if I might say myself. But we're going to, before we get into Ben's work, Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit first uh, about your your academic background? How you got into chemistry? Uh, you know what what led you eventually to polymer science?
0: All right, yeah, no, I'd be happy to share. I uh, so just like Anthony, I I went to um, I went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and I uh, got my degree in chemistry uh, under the advisement of uh, Phil Costanzo there, and uh, I worked with a lot with like polymeric surfactants and things like that, dispersing nanoparticles, what have you, and then. Uh, that's really where I gained my love of polymer chemistry. And, uh, from there, it, you know, I was like, you know what? If we're going to do this, let's do it all the way. Let's, uh, let's go get a degree in polymer science and engineering. So, um, after, you know, visiting a bunch of schools came here to USM and it just felt like home. You know, the department's just amazing. So, uh, I knew I could do what I needed to do here. So, uh, so here I am just finishing it up. I'm, uh, on my way out the door in April. So, uh, so yeah, things are wrapping up for me and I can say I don't regret it one
1: bit. Awesome! It, it's funny you say you're out the door in April, as if we're not already in. Oh April. yeah, it is April. Today's, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think oh, it's, yeah April it's April first, right? Yeah, it is April first. Yeah. all right. All right. Yeah. No joke. So, so stuck in orange. It's coming up. What What's the exact date? When When do you defend? April twenty sixth. Yeah, April twenty sixth. Yeah. So getting that dissertation wrapped up, and uh,
0: you know, uh, moving on to the industry world, hopefully. So. What's What's
1: that dissertation wrapping up feel like right now?
0: Um, you know, it's not as bad as I thought it would uh you know after you get publications done it's it's really just kind of reiterating all those things and you know it's it's really not that bad to, to write an intro a kind of a comprehensive intro but like in conclusions and things but if you put in your work here and you you've been productive it's uh you
1: know they have a nice template to put it all in it's it's not as bad as people say it is i think so yeah thankfully we're not the first ones to actually have to do this right yeah exactly. that's pretty nice yeah. well
2: congratulations Thank and you. what's the title of your dissertation
1: oh yeah so um, Still deciding on that, you know,
0: specifically, but it's it's basically degradable polymer thermosets uh, using ketal based chemistries uh, is going to be you know something like that essentially. But hydrolytically degradable polymers in general are thermosets. thermosets. Okay, so what does all of that mean? All right, so okay. yeah, so thermosets. That, let's start there. So awesome. that that's what I work in is thermosets. And so so generally, if you think of plastics and polymer materials, generally subcategorized into thermoplastic and thermosets, right? so a lot of commodity polymers are thermoplastic which means of linear polymer chains like spaghetti right? uh, these big macromolecular chains and uh, upon heating those you can get above the melting temperature glass transition temperature and those chains can begin to flow like a liquid uh, and that way you can reprocess them right? maybe like water bottles or a lot of these uh, products you use everyday a lot of them are thermoplastic based they can be melted back down reprocessed and recycled uh, and, and that's great but a lot of plastics cannot so, we think of thermo and uh, thermosetting polymers, unlike those linear chain thermoplastics. It's like a three dimensional spider web of polymer chains that are all interconnected. It's like one big entangled uh, cross link network. And so uh, that. Gives it really nice properties that you don't get from thermoplastics, right? You get really high performance properties, very uh, like high temperature resistant stuff, really good mechanical strength, and that's why we use them for uh, like t- the tires on your car, right? You can't melt those back down, and that's why it's a huge, you know, uh, ecological problem, like as far as like plastic waste, and that's for all thermosets. It's a huge problem. Because you don't even have the choice to really recycle them. You pretty much, if you want to dispose of them, you have to burn them. So a lot of them are just burned for energy use. So they just end up in landfills and, and all these things. And so and so, yeah, we need to start thinking about these materials in a like cradle to grave approach, right? Like you're really, you know, thinking about what's happening after the life cycle. Like clearly, we want useful materials during their lifespan. But what happens when we dispose of them, or can we recycle them? And so thermosets are this huge problem right now uh, in that sector. And so that's kind of where I come in with my research, is is uh, dealing with, hey, how, how can we make these more environmentally friendly? And so for me, um, by, so really kind of just the overarching kind of theme of my research is by, I, I basically make it to where thermosetting materials can break down in water-like conditions over time. So by putting like labile bonds, like in that three-dimensional spider web network I was talking about, uh, you know, they, they'll d- eventually break down at like a critical critical pH environment or like you know you can and and so my my job is really to tune that degradation so clearly you don't want to make a thermoset product like you don't want to make the tires on your car start degrading the minute you put them on right so you want to make sure they're useful during their lifespan but then you know either you can break them down in an industrial setting where you can recycle them or, uh, you know, if they do end up in the environment, they'll simply break down over time, right, into non-harmful byproducts. And so, uh, so yeah, that's what I've been researching. And that's what I've been doing with various different types of networks. Uh, everything from elastic rubbery <laughs> type of networks to glassy, really strong, like, epoxy amine networks and things like that. And uh, showing that we can tune degradation based off fundamental chemistry, you know, principles.
1: What's a, maybe some applicable real-world example where, uh, where this could be... You've given the tire example, but now let's... Let's talk about a specific environment that you're going to put in. You said something about pH or temperature, certain chemicals that might be around to activate that degradation. What's uh, an example where we would put some plastic in a specific environment like that and use use this? Yeah. So I can give you one specific example on something
0: I'm working about. So, um, you know, like, Composite materials like carbon fiber type of materials, like high performance epoxy fiberglass type of materials, are used in like aerospace and things like that. Right. Uh, the biggest problem is there's no efficient way to recycle those, and there's these huge components. Like, you look at those huge windmills you see for energy production. They basically have to bury those in the ground after you're done, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a huge problem, right? Like, we need we need better ways to recycle these. And plus, you're also disposing of really expensive like uh, fibers and particles that could potentially be recycled. And so um, And so essentially what I have been working on is doing a selective, you know, tuning the chemistry where we can degrade these, where we can potentially take these materials that we would normally just throw in the ground, take them to uh, like a facility or something, and you could potentially put them in like a low pH solution and recycle them. Like and actually dissolve away the matrix and recover those really expensive fibers and fillers and things like that. Yeah, and that could be a huge not only you make a circular economy now for these like carbonaceous materials that are super expensive, but you can also now broaden the application range because now the cost is down and we can now make these cool new materials and a whole bunch of
1: different things. Is there any chance you know if we're able to? achieve this goal of, of say, again, I'm sticking with the recyclable tires or or material, the windmills, the things, the plastics, the the composite materials that just are having to be buried or burned when they're dead. Right. When we Mm -hmm. can't use them. If we can reuse all of that material, how much cost are we talking about cutting here? Do you happen to have any ballpark numbers in some kind of sectors that we, we could look at? Yeah. I mean, that's the big question, right? Like, we have the technology, right?
0: It's, it's, is it scalable?
1: Is it, you know,
0: realistic? And, and a lot of these, you know, initial products and reagents we use are, are petroleum based. And so there's, there's, yeah, the, it's a multifaceted, multivariate problem, right? Like it's not. And so I, I'm proud to say that at least for, um, at least for the materials I've been working on, a lot of them are uh, already widely available. Uh, and so, there is some potential to scale up there but yeah for a lot of these niche chemistries that's a major issue and so i i can't say definitively like cost wise you know what what that's going to look like but we're going to have to uh you know yeah we got the win we got the wind going here people
1: yeah we're sitting out here on a, a beautiful day to be honest in what what's the what, oh I can check my watch. Uh 68 degrees Fahrenheit. That's sir. California weather. Yeah, does anybody happen to know none of us sorry, I know we have we are have an international audience. Um, we have smartphones in our pockets. Oh no, I, should we take this long to figure out what it is in Celsius? <laughs> I don't know, it's
0: like
1: tw- tw- it's like 20,
0: 24 degrees let's say that. No, not even. 20, it's like 20, 21. Yeah, 21. 21 degrees.
2: Okay, okay, okay.
1: Okay. All right, uh, international audience, please let us know how close we are um, and whether or not we should be embarrassed. Thank you.
2: So talking about biodegradable thermosets, a question that comes to mind for me is how do these mechanical properties compare to traditional thermosets? And how close are you to achieving that same performance?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things compared to you know, a small amount of time. But I chose, I, I for at least my research, I was making uh, recyclable carbon fiber materials. Uh, That's kind of the end of my dissertation here. And so we made some epoxy mean formulations uh, that we compared to like a commercial variant, like BPA based, uh, you know, epoxy. Right. And, uh, and we actually were able to get almost identical thermomechanical uh, properties and mechanical properties. And even in some cases better overall than the um, or better performance than the commercially available uh, variant. And so it's definitely a, able to. And, and so this is kind of that same design paradigm I talked about before, where we could collect these carbon fiber like materials, these strong, really, really useful materials. I, you could take them to like a recycling facility and break them down in just like an aqueous solution of like pH one or something. And then you could uh, potentially recycle those uh, byproducts and, uh, such as the, not only the carbon fibers, but also the byproducts from degradation and reuse those for other types of chemistry. And so, um, and so, yeah, that's what I'm working on and what we've kind of shown right now. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's that's basically how
1: do you uh, how do you measure performance in this you talked about being able to make some material that performed better than than the counterparts or than what existed. Yeah. How do you how is this performance measured?
0: Yeah, so you can imagine that you have a solid material, right? And you pull on it you, like if you were to pull on a piece of plastic or pull on some whatever material you can imagine. It's going to have some finite strength before it breaks, right? And so that's like would be like the ultimate tensile strength of that material and so that would be like one measurement right but also how that material breaks how much does it stretch before it breaks you know is it rubbery like is it really rigid like you know you you can imagine there's all these different types of material properties that uh that need to be characterized and so for for like for my materials a big thing was like looking at um, what temperature does this matrix become rubbery like? Because it's this nice solid glassy—I won't say glassy, but it's this rigid type of polymer material, which makes it really useful for a lot of high-performance applications. But if you heat it up high enough, right, it those bonds start to get flexible and start, you know, moving around those polymer chains a little bit, and they—and uh, and it becomes rubbery like, right? But that's like a really interesting design parameter, right? Because uh, you know, for a high-temperature application, you don't want the material rubbery; you want it solid and strong. So,
1: okay, so. <laughs> i i like I love talking about glass transition properties yeah, in yeah. general a because i that's like what i I use so many different instruments to look at to get different perspectives of this property and w- let's talk a little bit about glass transition right now because it it people, everyone knows what if you would, uh, some what glassy means right in the real world I know that word I know what it means yeah I know yeah. what rubbery means, but in this context of this conversation it can get muddled yeah, right so sure. what what is a a r- everyday Material that we might see or touch, where we've uh, or something we've seen online, maybe that uh, is an example of something going from a what we would call a glassy state, and how what's what does a glassy state feel like, and what does a rubbery state feel like?
0: That's a good. That's a good question, right? I'm trying to think of now uh, contemporary applications and materials, but a rubbery one's easy, right? Everyone's played with like silly putty or something where you can it's it's you know behaves kind of almost like a rubber or tires on your car. It's soft, right? It's flexible, um, but like a rigid type of polymer with a higher glass transition temperature that's above room temperature, you would say uh, those those polymer chains are kind of they're frozen, so they they behave like a really strong solid material. They don't flex around. And that's where the term glassy is, right? So you can imagine if you have—I'm trying to think of like a example of a certain plastic product that's rigid, but like I don't know, like um, I guess almost like the glass on your. Well, I know this is not a polymer, but like if you look at the glass on your car, right, really rigid material and strong enough for its application. But if you were to throw that on the ground, it might crack. It's probably going to crack, right? And that's kind of—it's not flexible like a glass and that's what we say glassy and there's polymers like that that have those glassy like properties Uh, hopefully not as fragile as actual glass but that's just a uh you know just kind of the jargon that we use for that type of material property uh so you know rubbery flexible you know uh flexible stretchable whatever you want to say about that and then the glassy is rigid uh Rigid type of material. But of course, that rigid type of material can become rubbery above a certain temperature. Like I said, uh, once you start heating up those polymer chains, they start kind of moving between each other. It's what they call segmental motion of polymer chains. And so with that, then. Uh, you can, uh, at a certain critical temperature, you make a rubbery-like material. And so again, those, uh, and then the same thing with the rubbery materials. If you cool them down far enough, you prevent that segmental motion of chains and you can make it a glassy-like material. So these, right. the glass transition temperature is this, is this interesting point where we, we transition from hence the glass to a rubbery state, hence the glass transition, or to a rubbery state to a glassy state, hence the glass transition. No.
1: Right. Chemically, the material isn't changing at all. It's literally just going from feeling like you're holding essentially a piece of glass to a piece of rubber, or the other way around. Exactly.
0: And so, you know, it's and and that transition is is widely studied. It's you could there's you can just study glass transition on its own with a variety of different materials because it can behave so differently between different types of polymers right and so um so yeah i mean for me it's it's pretty simple you know i run like certain analyses on mine to just kind of get a few different i use a couple different methodologies to to measure that but uh but yeah no there's it's it's a very complex physical phenomenon that that is uh it's kind of like fundamental to polymer science
2: i guess on on the biodegradable thermosets track um What do you think is the bottleneck currently for these types of materials in terms of commercialization? Because I know you mentioned just by yourself and you and your group, you've successfully made these systems in a lot of different models or model chemistries. So what is a limiting factor right now and why aren't we saying this right now? Uh,
0: Cost. I mean, like we mentioned before, that's a huge prohibitive thing is cost and companies, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, bottom line is a bottom line, right? And the problem is a lot of these commodity plastics can be made for pennies for pound, you know? And it's it's actually even cheaper than recycling them. So even plastics we can recycle right now, those thermoplastic polymers I was talking about, uh only like seven percent of those get recycled. And so it's like very dismal amount, right? Like, really small amount, and because you have to collect them, you have to sort them. They're not going to be miscible together when you like. They have to be separated by the polymer type. They have to be cleaned. They have to you know be sort, sorted. It's 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 a whole thing, right? And so, it's cheaper just to start with you know reagents again and make a brand new polymer material. And so, yeah, it's uh, that that's the major problem. You compete with these highly scalable materials that are non-degradable that are super cheap, right? And so. Yeah, how, how do how do we fix that? Is the is the million dollar question, right? It's, and it's not trivial. It's there's a lot of variables there,
1: right. and so uh, so yeah, that's that's the big question for the future. Absolutely, I wish I had the answer to that. You know, <laughs> uh, let's talk about now some of the chemistries involved within the the polymers that you're using. You tell you used where it's acetals, ketals, uh, things that need to hydrolyze, and degrade. What what are the specific types of Chemicals or polymers that you're using, right, that allow you to make something degradable?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, the architecture or
1: the, I guess, the networks I'm using are vastly
0: different. I'm using like a rubbery type of bioether materials uh, or, or networks, which are uh, uh, basically um, sulfur based types of networks that are, are kind of a new contemporary technology for, for making rubbery types of materials. And with those, uh, we incorporate. Um, what are called ketals and ketals are normally used as like a protecting group in fundamental organic chemistry where you can, if you want to protect like a ketone on like a molecule, like I don't know our target audience is wide right but let's I'm going to speak to those who have taken organic chemistry yeah, yeah. and so most of us have done who taken organic chemistry probably had a lab where you had some type of aromatic molecule or like cyclic molecule and you had multiple functionalities on it and you needed to protect one of those functionalities so you can do some other chemistry on another one of those functionalities so you don't do two reactions at once and then you would de the other one to get original functionality back for like roundabout way of saying it but yeah, yeah, yeah so so yeah and so that that works by hydrolysis so protecting it is by removing water and putting like a group on there which protects it and then by uh, adding water back to it you can hydrolyze it and remove it and so you can imagine that these long polymer chains that interconnect in this network if you can incorporate one of those functionalities between those polymer chains one of you, the key functionalities yeah you can make that that linkage cleavable right you can uh, using water, like right. it, it'll cleave it, and then now you've broken a, a chemical bond, essentially. And so you keep make a lot of those throughout the network. You, you make a network that can be cleaved over and over again using just like a water aqueous type of solution,
1: right. and uh, and and completely dissolve it. So literally, the the water you you've made this this network, and you've introduced these tau components specifically so that in such a way that when those degrade the polymer starts to fall apart it doesn't be it's not a long chain anymore it's a bunch of tiny smaller pieces exactly and that starts that that happens by adding water
0: yeah exactly in the right
1: environment of course (laughs) yeah i mean uh,
0: and that's the trick rain yeah yeah exactly right and so i mean some things may you know over a long period of time but like uh yeah and that's the trick is is using this you know, fundamental like organic chemistry principles uh, using chemical structures to tune that degradation to a specific application, right? And and that all depends on that environment or whatever that material is going to be used for. And so, and then we need to have a handle over those things to make these, to again, make these materials useful and, uh, and, and uh, and really start thinking about making thermosets more environmentally friendly.
1: Yeah. Uh, before I go on, let's try and get some audio explaining what a uh, protecting group is real quick. Right to the to the not. I'm just looking at maybe maybe you know how you we can say that uh, uh, explain a protecting group for okay. people who don't know what a protecting group is. Anthony, you want to take this one?
2: I think the name just says it. Right. Well, you're protecting. All
1: right, here I'll okay. have all the crack at it. Okay, all a okay. crack at it. All
0: right, so you can imagine with uh, molecules are reactive, right? Right. Like like they have certain aspects or different. Uh, atoms on them that react with other atoms to make chemical bonds, right? And so, you can imagine if one molecule has a bunch of different reactive uh, functionalities, which are certain combinations of atoms, right? Like different points where it can react. Exactly. And so, maybe you want to do chemistry and change one of those functionalities to be able to react in a certain way, but you don't want to do it on another functionality on that same molecule. Right on the same molecule. And so, what you would do is you would protect one of those by adding a certain... Chemical bond to it that would uh, keep it from reacting with whatever type of other chemistry you're doing on that molecule, and so, uh, so in this particular case, for the one I'm describing, it's a hydrolysis type of reaction, and so where you uh, you get you have to basically heat it up to form this type of protecting group on uh, on this functionality, and then by introduction of water, you cleave that chemical bond to deprotect it, and so it's this uh, it's this equilibrium of protection, deprotection using water. Um, I hope that. Maybe I need to kind of. I'm trying to think of a simpler way to put that. I uh, think that, I, mean, I think that was yeah, good. Yeah, was okay. Good.
1: All right. All good. Good. A fun little tidbit. All right. Um, the next question I was just going to ask. I'm curious. So we we've talked about ketals and we it helped us understand. I think the 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 basics of uh, the the fundamental idea of what you're trying to do here. This is you're, We already know you're making degradable polymers. Uh, this is one example of how I can degrade. Uh, you mentioned that ketals is just one method. Water is just one method. What are some other ways that either you have done, maybe you've seen in the literature? How else are people trying to tackle this problem? I mean, there's all different types of chemical bonds, right? You can use not just ketals. There's esters
0: and things you can find all over the place. But again, it's one of those things that um, there's many ways to the top of the mountain, you know what I mean? And, and there's a lot of ways to tackle this problem. But, um, but yeah, that was kind of the less discovered route. And so that was something I thought would be interesting to study. But there are, there are a lot of chemistries out there and, and different uh, ways of doing that. Now, you know, you can, again, there's so many different aspects, different types of uh, polymers with different attributes that, that make them susceptible. different environments or different solvents or whatever to degrade them you know you imagine a really hydrophobic which means you know a a polymer that doesn't like water it's going to have a hard time degrading in water right (laughs) sorry i keep putting my hand on the table but uh, and it's shaking the microphone so i apologize but but yeah you can imagine that having a a polymer that doesn't like water it's gonna have a hard time degrading in water right because of that repulsion so there's certain there's a certain type of balance between like hydrophobicity and things like that that you need to take into account uh, the other is like swelling like of a network like if you've got a really porous network um, it could take on solvent or water and swell the material and just make it useless uh, just even before degrading you know literally like a sponge yeah absorbing it, it, and then it ruin the material property so it's kind of this balance between all these different factors that you have to take into account uh, to me and that's why it's so complicated and and why it's it's still a heavily researched subject is because it, it's not trivial right there's so many
1: different codependent variables and so
0: and so yeah that's that's also fun like for me i like puzzles so for me that's a it's, it's a fun puzzle to work on
1: you know yeah that's a kind of a personality trait you it's very helpful in grad school i think right? i think as a scientist you got to have yeah. genuine uh
0: genuine genuinely like solving problems and have genuine curiosity as long as you have those two things you'll be fine
1: and be okay with failing a lot <laughs> yes heard that one before persistence
2: bit,
0: sure. yeah persistence is key absolutely
2: so can can you talk about uh, what you did before coming to us or did, did your research back in undergrad yeah. any way influence what you're doing now
0: okay yeah so uh in my undergraduate research i worked on like polymeric surfactants which most of us are familiar with dish soap or Dawn or whatever and so you need to have a molecule which likes water but also dislikes water at the other end you have this kind of two-ended uh you know uh these two properties on one molecule and uh, on one molecule where it can interact with the dirt on your hands or whatever, or the hydrophobic, uh, you know, grease particles or whatever. But then at the other hand, it's got to be hydrophilic where it kind of interacts with water. And that's how, how soap works, right? You need those, those, those that functionality there of, of
1: liking both water and dirt or, right, or the, oily things. The right? hydrophobic collects the oily stuff and the water carries it all the way. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, yeah, if,
0: long, yeah so that's, that's how soap works but yeah it, essentially though soap doesn't isn't just used for washing hands there's also soaps that help uh you know clean up like nanoparticles and when i say clean up attach to them and disperse in like water solutions right because they're technically hydrophobic just like grease or dirt or oil or whatever and so we have to use the same principles to be able to process a lot of these hydrophobic materials uh nano like carbon nanotubes and things like that, these carbonaceous materials, which have really good, interesting properties, but they're difficult to process. And so being able to process them, we need kind of a soap to pick them up and put them into solution. And so that's what I worked on in my undergrad, was designing those uh, using copolymers. So I did a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, con- what we call controlled radical polymerization, and uh, to get very well defined, uh, net, uh, I guess, polymer chains, I guess you could say with very specific properties uh, to tune that
1: you know uh, affinity towards those particles and water and everything like that so what does it mean to have a well-defined polymer that's a great question and another
0: one of those fundamental things like glass transition temperature that are is you have to you know it's very important when it comes to material properties when it comes to polymers right so As I said before, these polymers are like molecular chains. They're, 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 uh, they're, they're like molecules that are really long, like spaghetti, right? And you can imagine that the physical properties of that material is going to change based off the length of those spaghetti noodles, right? So if you've got these really long spaghetti noodles, uh, they're, they're probably going to be more intertwined together and they're going to be harder to pull apart, right? Whereas thin ones are going to kind of easily pull out of the system, right? So like that as an example, the length of those polymer chains profoundly affects the material properties. And so not only is it important to know the average length of those spaghetti chains, quote-unquote, but also the distribution. You know, if you've got a bunch of small ones and a bunch of large ones together, it's going to be different if you have just kind of a, uh, you know, a bunch of small ones versus a bunch of large ones, you know. And so qual- quantifying that in, in a material is super important. And so for us to be able to isolate different variables, we would use a polymerization method by um, by combining these molecules in a very controlled way, which we could make a well-defined polymer chain of an equal length. So So when we're testing material properties, we know, hey, this this is the chain length that is attributing to these properties in the material, and so that's what
1: that's what I mean by by that. Excellent, well said. Thank thank you for that uh, education. <laughs> I, I like that. I I don't think I've ever really like thanked the listeners for the for the explanations <laughs> that I asked for, and that's a very considerate thing to do. So thank you, Anthony, for introducing me to that. Yeah. So uh, moving forward, both I suppose in in this show and and for you, man. What's next? What's what do you got going on? Oh, uh, you know, just looking at some Dr. Uh, Rollins. Oh, we got oh, we have so another guest. I'm yeah, glad we're, we're really recording good. right now, but I'm glad we picked this spot because <laughs> now it's great. We have all these people coming to stop by. This, <laughs> in case for for the listeners to eventually hear this, we're we're recording at campus just outside the building. We got a lovely setup here. Dr. James Rollins just came by to say hello. He was a recent guest on the show. How you doing, Dr. Rollins? Doing Well, how are y'all? We're doing great. Doing great. Here. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah. It's, hey, yeah. Do you happen to know in Celsius, what what's 68 degrees Fahrenheit? What about? 19. 19. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. Their guess was 21. That's I say 21. Close. I don't
0: it think, think it's 21. Now.
1: We figured we well, got an international <laughs> audience, so I, I hope they'll let us know what's up. Have a good one. Um, sorry. Sorry to cut you off. We were talking about where, what you're doing next. What's, what you got going on? Yeah.
0: So yeah, looking for a career right now and. You know, it's one of those things. You get to this point, it's like, you know, what do I really want out of a job, right? Like, there's a lot of things I think I can do well, but like at the end of the day, what's going to get me up in the morning and like make me want to go to work, you know? And so that's been fun, and I think I've narrowed it down to what I want. And uh, I guess maybe for those who are going to be looking for a job, I, you know, it depends on what you value, you know, like like you can't get around that. But for me, it was the the amount of creative freedom I get in my scientific role. So you can imagine you got two ends of the spectrum, right? You've got you've got like a rubber stamp job where you work in a, you know, you're making some commodity polymer and it's got to be exactly the same every day and you just rubber stamping it, you do your analysis and that's it, right? That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't it doesn't, uh, keep my attention for too long. Yeah. And so, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got like academia where kind of sky's a limit, right? You know, a pie in the sky doesn't, you know, there's, you have to have deliverables in terms of papers, but like, you know, actually an application, maybe, maybe not, you know? And so, uh, for me, it was like, well, I need, uh, you know, I need innovation. That was one of the criteria and enough of that creative freedom where it's going to stay inter- interesting to me as a scientist. And I think a lot of people like that. And, and so for me, again, I, I, t- I mean, I joke about it, but it's true. Like I can work in anything from cosmetics to carbon fiber. I don't really care as long as I get to innovate and solve problems, and, and it's interesting, right? So it's it's not. Uh, so it's, yeah, that was a big thing for me, and I think I've isolated it down uh, to a couple, maybe a couple different companies doing really cool stuff. So
2: so now that you've you're at the tail end of your PhD career, what's one thing that you've learned that is general life advice that you would give yourself or give anybody else in the um, beginning of their academic journey?
0: Just make sure it's something you really like because otherwise you're not going to enjoy it. Like for me, like a lot of people have different experiences in grad school. For me, I genuinely like working on polymers in chemistry. And there was never a time where, you know, like it was hard. Like it's, it's hard getting a PhD, but... There's always things to be excited about, like developments where right? it kept me going because I'm like, this is really exciting findings, or we can apply this in a certain way, or or whatever. And so I think being able to be excited about your own science and like what you're doing is critical to your own success. And I'm not even saying I've made it yet, but like you know, I feel like it doesn't really matter if you know I've already made it if I'm enjoying what I'm doing, right? And so PhD's a if you don't enjoy it, it's going to be a really rough path. And you see people struggle through that, and uh, you know, sometimes you just want to tell them like, hey, like you know. So many things to do in this world, right? And all different types of scientific disciplines as well, not just polymer science. But, but yeah, to, without going too long-winded, just if you, it, it's it's a career
1: if you really like materials and, and solving problems. You know, so uh, yeah, just enjoy what you do. That's it. Sound advice, but advice that resonates with me very much. And being towards the end of my career, I couldn't agree Your with it Your career, door. that's that's well, pretty excuse quick. Excuse me, graduate <laughs> career is what I like to say. Yeah. yeah, the end of my career. Wouldn't that be So cool? Getting ready to retire. I don't know. <laughs> The money i want to have at the end of my career right now so not there yet but um ben that's all we got man Th- thank you so much for for joining us on the show today and being outside on this beautiful day and being here for anthony's inaugural podcast oh
2: yeah i I could not have asked for a a better guest you were one educator you've given us life advice you talked about your research i don't know what more i can ask of you yeah
0: i'm just a total renaissance man right now (laughs) yeah yeah, no seriously no thanks for it it was a pleasure
1: talking to you both and thanks for having me on yeah wish you the best thank you once again a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in for today's episode of the polymer science podcast with dr benjamin alameda that's right, after our interview with Ben, he successfully defended his Ph.D. dissertation and is now Dr. Alameda. Dr. Ben, huge congrats to you, man. We're really proud of you. And to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation and maybe picked up a better understanding of polymer science altogether. As always, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platforms to keep in touch with all of our latest updates. And please feel free to reach out to us with any comments or questions at Polymer Science podcast at gmail.com Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time.